is Amy Hull, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. And with me is Greg Kogel. Yes, hi, Amy. Hi, Greg. All right. This first question comes from E. Fudd. Wait, E. e <laughs> Elmer? This is Elmer. Okay. We'll yes, just say this E. Is, this isn't E. Fudd's first question, but I, I don't think he's asked a question in a while. So uh-huh. um, nice to hear from you again, E. Fudd. Okay. The latest pro-abortion euphemism is, quote, not getting between a woman and her doctor. What are some good ways to break down this assertion? Okay, so I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. Um, well, in whenever you deal with a slogan like this, um, and I have to remind myself of this, you always want to ask a clarification question. What do you mean? Not getting between a woman and her doctor, okay? Um to, to me, just as an aside, this is like saying um, if you, you you are getting between a, a a person, a patron and his banker when you're robbing a bank, no robbing. Don't interfere with robbing a bank. You're getting in between the patron and his banker. It's it's a it's a silly statement. Right. So when you have slogans that really turn out to be silly, you're getting in between a woman and her doctor. Yeah. We are, we are trying to prevent the doctor from killing her baby. I guess that's the way you could put it. Um, so, so the, but the first step is always going to be, I'm not sure what you mean. And then make the other person explain it, okay? Um, and the reason you do that is slogans have power because of a certain rhythm that they have or a rhetorical element that they have. And when people are forced to explain the meaning of the slogan, they lose that rhetorical element. Okay. So, um, and that, and that certain kind of rhythm, what do you mean? Well, I don't know what they'd say. I mean, I was trying to imagine they would, they might say, well, you're saying a doctor cannot do a certain procedure on a woman. Really? Is that what I'm saying? Isn't there more involved here? Is it just the woman that the procedure is being done on? Another question. So I'm um, just clarification. Well, what does abortion do? Well, abortion, you know, kills a fetus. Oh, okay. So what we have is one human being, the mother, and another human being in the fetal stage, right? Right. So what we're talking about now is not getting between a doctor and his, uh, a woman and a doctor. It's getting between the, the doctor and the unborn child the doctor wants to kill. So now all you're doing so far is clarifying. That's all you're doing. And once you clarify these things but by asking these kinds of questions, getting, getting information from someone, now you're getting... Uh, uh, you, you're, you're taking the, taking the the um, the guild off of the slogan. There's lots mm-hmm. of slogans that you know uh, are are like that. They just people are saying these things, um, and and they they have rhetorical force. But when you ask for explanation, then they lose their rhetorical force. And this is true of lots and lots of. Um, uh, pro-abortion kinds of sayings. Like, for example, they might ask you a question, don't you think a woman has a right to choose? And my response is, well, let me ask you a question first. Do you think a woman has a right to take? And they're going to say, take what? And I say, exactly. 
It depends on what they're taking, whether or not they have a right to take it, and it depends on what they are choosing in order to in order to determine whether they have a right to choose. So, when you say a woman has a right to choose, what is it you're saying she has a right to choose? Oh, she has a right to choose an abortion. Okay, and what is an abortion? Well, that's where you terminate a pregnancy. What does that mean? Notice these are all euphemisms. What does that mean? Well, you end the pregnancy. How do you end a pregnancy? How does any pregnancy end? One of two ways, either birth or death. That's how our pregnancy ends. Now, birth isn't in view here. Death is in view. Okay, so are you saying that a woman should have the right to choose the death of her child? Now, you've taken all the guilt off of it, right? Oh, it's not a child, okay? Her human offspring. You can't take exception with that. It is her offspring that her body is producing, and it is human. That's part of the genetic code, right? So the idea here is ask questions to um, disarm the rhetorical force of the slogan that's being used. Now, if a person wants to insist you are trying to get in the way, in between a woman and her doctor, I'm going to say, if I had to, I'd just say, you're right, what's wrong with that? Now, if they say, well, you should never interfere with that private relationship, what if your doctor wanted to um, perform a, a clitorectomy on your daughter? Do you think somebody should have a right to get in the way of him sexually mutilating your daughter? Well, of course. All right, why? Well, you don't do that to, you know, it, it, I think most listeners here can follow the rationale reasoning that I'm using right here, but you, you, you're going to ask these questions to take the glow, the glitter off of the rhetorical force of the slogan, because the slogan is meant to confuse. This isn't just intervening in a relationship. This is a protective action to keep the doctor from killing another innocent human being. That's what's at stake. Now, that's the pro-life view. If a person disagrees with that, then they have to disagree with the pro-life view. They just can't toss out the slogan, well, you're getting in between a woman and her doctor. And I, as far as I know, that's not even a new slogan. That goes all the way back, but there are different ways that they employ that concept now. One thing that might help as you're in a conversation like this is to keep in mind that they probably don't understand what your position is. Mm -hmm. just, just go in there with the idea in mind my goal is going to be, when I leave this conversation, I want them to understand the pro-life view. I don't have to convince them right now, but I want them to understand my objection to abortion. So when it comes to this slogan, I think what happens is um, the pro-choicers think, uh, and I, I don't know how sincerely they think this, but I'm sure there are some that really do sincerely think this. They think that the pro-lifer is all about controlling women. Mm -hmm. That's their only understanding. They've never heard the argument that uh, we think this is killing a valuable human being, and that's why we're against it. They're convinced it's because pro-lifers want to control women. So therefore, this slogan reflects that view. If you're getting between a woman and a doctor, it's because you're trying to control her. Mm -hmm. So that's what this is promoting. And notice, um, by saying, and her doctor, and not, and the abortion or killing the child, they're playing on, as you said, Greg, the rhetorical force of our understanding of a doctor. A doctor is someone who helps us, who heals us, mm -hmm. who is 
acting for our good and making sure that we're healthy and well. Mm -hmm. So everything about this slogan is meant to make us feel like the pro-lifers want to harm the woman, control her and harm her by keeping her from someone who's going to make her well and healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, it's a tremendously charitable interpretation. That's what I would say. If that's what they really believe, I think this is culpable ignorance. Uh, because uh, we've been talking about this for 50 years aggressively since Roe v. Wade. And uh, it's hard for me to believe that a a pro-choicer is deeply convinced that this is what's going on. Now, um, I think they posture that way, and they talk this way all the time. But uh, I don't think if they were really honest with themselves, that's really what they believe, that we pro-lifers are trying to control women. Well, either way, when your questions, I think, were great, Greg, to help them to understand our position and to clarify each part of that slogan mm-hmm. so that you, like you said, you take the, what did you say, the glitter the off? Gild the gild and glitter <laughs> off, the, off the rhetoric, yeah. Yeah, because then you can help them to understand what your challenge is. Mm-hmm. So, and then finally, after you, you make all those, uh, everything you suggested, Cla- clarifications. Greg, I think you might ask, well, what what if a woman came to her doctor and hired her doctor to kill her born child? Should I come between her woman oh, and her great. doctor in that situation? Yeah. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Because there you're seeing she's coming to her doctor for a certain reason, as you pointed out, to kill the child. Is it okay to come between them if she's hiring him to kill someone else? Mm-hmm. And so um, I I think all those things might help you in a conversation with somebody. That's a variation of the sled argument, Mm -hmm. which says that the unborn is vulnerable, legitimately vulnerable in light of their environment inside of the womb, not outside of the womb. And that's a trivial location is morally trivial. It's unrelated to the real moral question here. So Mm -hmm. it's good. Good application of that concept. All right. Here's a question from Danrick. How would I respond to the challenge Quote, if God allows or arguably is sovereign over miscarriage, which ends a life and brings sadness to a woman, how can he blame a woman who personally decides to abort her own child? I need to go deeper than Genesis 3. Well, I, I, again, sometimes I, I, I'm a little mystified by the challenge. Okay. God allows people to die. Let's just speak very generally here. In God's sovereignty, he's over all of that thing. People die all the time. Since people die all the time, if people die, if some people die at my hand because I'm angry at them and I shoot them, then how could God find fault with me? So this is just a counterexample. It proves too much. (laughs) Yeah, it it proves too much. Exactly. This is a taking the roof off, and uh, that's the tactic, and we're just taking this point of view seriously and giving it a test drive and seeing where it takes us. And um, if it drives us off a moral cliff, we probably started in the wrong place, okay? We're on the wrong route. And this is the case here. This challenge is not even remotely appealing to me or or, uh, compelling, because if God will allow one kind of thing to happen— then since he allows that thing to happen in the world, then it's okay for me to cause the thing to happen. Well, God allows all kinds of evil things to happen for his own reasons, for his own purposes. That doesn't mean it's okay for us to do those evil things. That's why we call them evil things. I, 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 
it, the logic completely escapes me on this one. Well, like you said, Greg, it, it applies to every death. Now, God actually has caused everybody's death because the death is part of the, the curse. Mm-hmm. It's part of our punishment. Every single person dies because that is God's punishment. That there is death, right. Yeah, that yeah. there is death. So, like you said, that would that would prove that you can murder anybody you want. But, of course, it doesn't. And part of that is there's there's no parallel here between God as creator and judge and us. Yes. We have our role and responsibility and authority, and God has his. Mm-hmm. And there's no parallel between God bringing about people's death and a mother killing the child that she's charged with protecting. Right. Exactly. There's there's just no parallel. It's not it's it's we're talking about two different things here. It 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 also I guess shows me how strong a person's commitment is to doing the wrong thing when their attempt at justification is so shallow. This this persuades the pe- a person I, I have actually said this sometimes to people when I'm talking with to them, I say, that's persuasive to you? Are you kidding? Really? I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but really, that's persuasive? Well, you're just not thinking hard enough about this issue. That's all, you know. I think a lot of times what happens is people who aren't Christian are trying to find loopholes in Christianity to help persuade people over to a materialistic worldview, Mm. to to persuade them to to positions that follow from a materialistic Mm -hmm. worldview. Mm. And so you do get sometimes these kind of gotcha type things that you have to think through to realize, wait a minute, this there's nothing behind this. Mm-hmm. Well, the morality of any murder um, is influenced by the materialistic worldview. It's not a murder. It's just a killing. It's not something wrong. It's just what happens in a world where there's no purpose or uh, there's just molecules clashing in the universe, you see. So... All right, so let's go on to a question from Richard. How can we reconcile Psalm 139, 13 through 16 with the presence of congenital disorders in some babies? Okay, the verses then in question 13 through 16. Mm-hmm. For you formed my inward parts. By the way, this is a psalm about God's omnipotence, I'm sorry, omnipresence and his omniscience. He is personally He is personally, um, consciously aware of every place, and he knows everything. And the verse says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. It's 14. i got to turn the page here. My frame was hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and your book, in your book were written the days that were ordained of me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, I, I think what one has to keep in mind here is that this is a poem, all right? So what, in poetry, there's a certain license that's taken with language to make broad general points that you, you characteristically cannot read with a wooden literality. So when I read the beginning here, and it says, um, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I don't think that David, 
or the psalmist here, is asserting that God is actively constructing each individual in the womb. So when a woman gets pregnant, it's God who's putting the cells together and building the body inside of her womb. Now, there's a biological process that God has ordained, very complex, obviously designed, that God has ordained for that to happen. And I think that's what the psalmist is referring to. This is an incredibly complex enterprise that you that you are intimately aware of and intimately aware not of just the process biologically, such that we we acknowledge your ownership of the design and process, though we know it to be a biological process, um, but you also have an intimate awareness of the individual who is being formed in that womb. So um, that's what the this passage is talking about. And it's a reflection on how amazing and wonderful the work is. By the way, this is the case. It's obviously the case. Anybody who watches a birth cannot not be moved by it. It's it's overwhelming. Uh, the ones I've seen, I've just, I've, you know, uh, I've choked up and to tears because it's just such a powerful thing to see happen. What a miracle. People will often say it's the miracle of birth. And so that's what's being captured here, and that God is the one responsible for this wonderful thing. Now, of course, this is in the context of a fallen world. So even though God's hand is evident in the process of making a new individual, and that individual is is um, fully, in a certain sense, exposed to God's awareness from the moment of their existence, He knows us. Um, he has seen our unformed substance. The days in, in your book were written, all the days that were ordained for me. So there's a personal sense that God knows me, and I think that's what the the psalmist is getting after here. He's he's not saying that God is is actually constructing each individual in the womb of the mother in a mechanistic way, such that those who are born with congenital defects, well, those defects are constructed by God in the womb. I think it's a misunderstanding of the genre, poetry here, and uh, and, and and the point, the broader point that's being made. And the nice thing is that point applies equally to someone who has some sort of disability. And the idea is you are deeply known. You weren't forgotten by God. God didn't forget you. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that you were just randomly, you know, have this problem and and God doesn't know you and and doesn't love you and doesn't deeply know you. Um, So even if God is not, you know, constructing someone with a disability, He's still sovereign over it. Mm-hmm. And and so I think even in the sense that, I mean, in that sense, he, he is constructing them because he's sovereign over the whole process. But it's a slightly different sense. It's more like um, when I think about in, I think it's John 9, with the man who was born blind. Mm-hmm. And the disciples say, well, why was he born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. <laughs> It, it was for the glory of God. It was so that he so that he could reveal himself mm-hmm. to the world. And this man, because of his disability, was able to help reveal God to the world, reveal Jesus to the world in a way that we we're still blessed by it today. Mm-hmm. We read the story. We we see Jesus revealed 
because of this man's disability. So there's never going to be no purpose. It's never going to be wasted. And it's never because God just doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put all of these things together to understand um, kind of how God's sovereignty plays into this. And I can imagine there are people thinking, well, that's why would I want, you know, that's not fair. Why is God, why was this man born blind for God's glory? Well, the truth is it wasn't just God's glory. It was also this man's good because participating in that was also for his good. Mm -hmm. God is working all things together for the good of his people. He's making them like Jesus and he's working in everyone's life. And the question is, do you think God's worth it or, or do you not? Mm. If you don't think God's worth it, then hearing that it's for God's glory is really not going <laughs> to impress you very much. <laughs> so if, if that's your reaction, I encourage you to learn more about God. Mm-hmm. Because when you see him as he is, you'll see that this the man born blind was, was blessed by that. Mm-hmm. He played a very important role that was, a, you know, being part of that was an incredible thing for him and for the world and for God's glory. And plus there were arguably, arguably at least, um, eternal consequences to that because this miracle happening to him was very compelling, I'm sure, for him to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think there's narrative that follows that indicates that. And so he became a believer and therefore healed in a much more profound sense. Yeah. Well, thank you for your questions, Richard and Derek and Fudd. We appreciate hearing from you. Send us your question on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or go through our website, and we look forward to hearing from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.